this week on the Back Table Podcast. Consider sudden hearing loss as an otologic emergency. Consider that the loss of a sense is frightening and can be rather devastating to the patient and their family. I think keeping the end in mind is really important on the first minute that you see the patient. So really talking to them about what you're looking at, what you're generally considering in the future is really important. And, you know, I think being the hearing doctor is a really important part of who we are. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Back Table ENT podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. Now a quick word from our sponsor. Cook Medical's otolaryngology head and neck surgery clinical specialty strives to provide otolaryngologists with minimally invasive solutions to address unmet needs. Areas of focus include head and neck, otology, and laryngology, with products ranging from a full suite of interventional silendoscopy products and the Doppler blood flow monitoring system to the biodesign otologic repair graft and the Hercules 100 transnasal esophageal balloon. For more information, visit cookmedical.com forward slash otolaryngology. Now, back to the show. My name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT, and I'm here today with my partner in crime, Dr. Ashley Agan. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Ashley Agan, general ENT, and we have a, an awesome guest on the show today. I will introduce her now, Dr. Sujana Chandrasekhar. She's a neurotologist practicing at ENT and Allergy Associates in New York City. She has made many contributions to our field, serving as president and past chair of the Board of Governors of the AAO HNS and serving as secretary treasurer of the American Otological Society, the AOS. She's the president elect of the AOS, Eastern Section VP of the Triological Society, and consulting editor of Otolaryngologic Clinics of North America. She records a podcast per issue with the guest editors. She's also a host for her show, She's on Call, which is a video show with 59 episodes, all on YouTube, and also podcasts of each show. Dr. Chandra Shekhar is here to talk to us today about sudden sensorineural hearing loss. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ashley and Gopi. It's really a pleasure to make it onto Backtable ENT. Very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're very excited to have you. Can you first tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Sure. Um, as Ashley said, my practice is limited to otology and neurotology. I am in private practice with a heavily personal academic bent to my life. I just enjoy that. I began my career after fellowship in academic medicine, academic otolaryngology, in two institutions, and then since the end of 2004, I've been in private practice, first just hanging my shingle on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and seeing if patients come, and they did, and then sharing some space with a couple of other people, and now as a partner in the largest single-specialty otolaryngology group in the world, which sounds like very amazing, ENT and Allergy Associates, and it's a lot of fun. It Frankly, my practice allows me to provide the clinical care 
at the level that I want and also continue to do research and teach and publish and speak and meet engaging people like you guys. That sounds like an amazing, amazing practice. Can you tell us a little bit about She's on Call? What's it about? Tell us about it. Right. So as the pandemic closures began um, and people were really scared at COVID-19, right? Nobody really understood. I was quite surprised how many people did not actually understand how to wash their hands or how to, you know, what six feet is from somebody. So Marina Korean is a general surgeon who does minimally invasive bariatric surgery and medical and surgical treatment of obesity. And Marina and I have been friends since we were young. And she and I sort of separately appeared on a show by a guy named Sri Srinivasan, who is the Walter Cronkite Professor of Journalism at Arizona State University now, previously at Stony Brook, previously at Columbia School of Journalism. And he had us on for the last half hour of his weekly New York Times Sunday read-along to really talk about COVID-19 and answer viewer questions. And then he suggested, he said, you know, you guys would be really good on a show. And that took us a little bit to process. And in uh, June of 2020, we started She's On Call, and it's a video show. And we did 59 episodes, one a week in the first year, year plus, and then one every two weeks. And then we did our final 59th show, December of 2021, where we talked about COVID-19 in the beginning. But then we really talked about various medical issues. And they could range from, you know, pediatric cardiology, adult cardiology, orthopedics, infectious disease, psychiatry, dating and dating apps was our Valentine's show. That was really kind of interesting. Um, You know, school health, school nurses, medical school. I learned a lot on that show. We addressed a lot of topics that are near and dear to both of our hearts, gun violence in America, other endemic issues that affect populations. And I think we accomplished what we wanted to, which was to share complex medical information in a way that engages audiences ranging from a layperson to a professor whose specialty is that, right? So we were able to break it down in ways that I thought were very interesting. We had real-time questions and answers, and it was really quite a lot of fun. That's awesome. So let's get into our topic today, shall we? We're going to talk about sudden sensory neural hearing loss. And so maybe we can just start with definitions. And is it always sensory neural? Right. So the patient doesn't know whether they have sensory neural loss or conductive loss or mixed loss, right? They don't. They just know they can't hear. So when you start with sudden hearing loss, a really nice way, I think, to think about it is to follow the patient's path as they access healthcare. So they wake up or they're in the middle of a conversation and they suddenly can't hear, generally out of one ear. It's extraordinarily rare to have bilateral sudden sensory neural hearing loss. That kind of throws you out of this particular conversation into some other conversations. So they suddenly can't hear and let's say they access healthcare in a timely fashion. And so the first thing you want to do is 
you want to determine as the healthcare provider whether this is a conductive loss or a sensory neural loss primarily. And that can be done very simply. So one, you should examine the patient. So you see a big giant wad of wax and tissue paper and cotton blocking the ear canal and you remove it and la, you know, you've restored hearing and all is good in the world. Take out your handy dandy 512 hertz tuning fork. That's the only one you really need. You vibrate it on your elbow or on your knee and not on the edge of the table where it makes a horrible shrieking sound, but really where you're having a nice vibration at middle C. So 512 hertz is basically middle C. And you want to put the trunk part of it on their mastoid bone. And you say, this is sound number one. And then you put the parallel portion of it vibrating next to the ear canal. So in a parallel plane and not a perpendicular plane to the opening of the ear canal. And you say, this is sound number two. And you say, which one is louder, number one or number two? And if number two is louder than number one, and they can now hear, they're probably done. If number two is louder than number one, and they still can't hear, they're not done. And if number one is louder than number two, look again and make sure you haven't missed a perforation, some fluid in the ear canal, some other reason for the conductive hearing loss. Now, they may have something that you can't really see, like otosclerosis or uh, malleus fixation, but, you know, an exam and a tuning fork is a very nice way to start this process. Yeah, but unfortunately, most urgent cares or primary cares are not going to have a tuning fork, right? Yeah, because it's $10. It's 10 bucks. <laughs> I mean, frankly, it's 10 bucks. So uh, a poor man's Weber test is you ask the patient to say, hmm. And if they have a conductive loss on one side, they will lateralize to that side. And you can check that by pushing on your tragus, close your ear canal on that side and say, and you will lateralize to your now 25 to 30 dB conductive loss ear. So that's a good Weber test. And frankly, if you're post-oping somebody in the recovery room and you left your tuning fork in the other building, it's actually a nice way to just, for after ear surgery, just make sure that they're lateralizing correctly. If you don't have a tuning fork, then you just jump right to an audiogram. But it's very nice to, to do simple things that can help you determine the emergent nature or non-emergent nature of what you're dealing with. Yeah, it's it's good to kind of have an idea to know what you're looking for, what the thoughtogram is probably going to look like or have a suspicion for it with your exam. How long does it usually take or what's the time on average between when the patient initially notices it to the time they actually see you or see one of your colleagues, you think? I feel like we don't usually see them right away. Uh, it's not common even sometimes in the first 24 hours. Sometimes it's a couple of days later. Right. So that is a big issue, right? So patients don't know when it's an emergency. And if they have an internist or, or family physician, it may also be cold and flu season. It may also be allergy season, right? It may also be something where on the phone or even in the office or the urgent care, the patient is told, oh, you know, take some pseudoephedrine, take some 
intranasal steroid spray, an antihistamine, and weight. And so the delay in reaching an ENT provider can be 7 to 14 days if we're lucky and often over three weeks by the time the patient navigates and realizes that their hearing has not recovered. Um, sometimes they're, you know, knee-jerk reaction given amoxicillin for something. I don't know what they're giving it for, but they're giving it. So I think, one, there's a delay in the patient really realizing. You know, this is true really for the mild to moderate hearing loss patients where they're like, oh, I'm a little congested. They don't have vertigo. They don't really have significant tinnitus with it. They don't have anything that's scaring them. So they may actually delay care either by accessing care and minimizing their symptoms or not accessing care because their symptoms are not great. The patients who have severe to profound hearing loss, particularly the ones who have tinnitus or vertigo with that hearing loss, do access care very quickly. And then any delay in care is from that initial healthcare entryway to the ENT. So in a closed system like Kaiser Permanente, Bob Cueva, who just stepped down as the head of neurotology in the San Diego Kaiser, and Erica Woodson is now the head of otology, neurotology there, he established a clinical care pathway within the system where if a patient appears in the ER or primary care with this complaint, they are actually able to get into ENT within 24 hours. And that's really a fantastic intervention to help patients get the care that they need. We definitely have tried to set up, you know, sudden loss as one of those red flag, you know, emergency, let's work them in sooner patient visit types. Um, but it can be tricky, like you said, if the patient doesn't recognize the urgency. You know, a lot of times people chalk it up to allergies or maybe have a cold or the urgent care, you know, whoever they looked in their ear said, maybe it looks a little red, you know, here's a medrol dose back or amoxicillin. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, like in my practice now, we have online booking and you really can see an otolaryngologist within 24 to 48 hours max. They can get you in to see the otologists in the practice the next day. But again, the patient has to know that there is an urgency to this. And they have to really say the words, I suddenly can't hear. Because if they're calling in, you know, the telephone operators know, like you said, the red flags, I'm bleeding, my, I'm this, I'm that, right? So they need to hear the correct words to trigger the correct pathway of an appointment. Yeah, because I can't hear or I have hearing loss isn't sudden. Oh, we got an appointment in three to six weeks with audiology and ENT. Yeah, our phone decision tree after you have hearing loss says, was it sudden or is it chronic that they will prompt to ask? But I mean, you know, going back to definitions, what counts as sudden? You know, does it need to be overnight? Like I woke up and boom, it's out. Or, you know, can it be like, oh, maybe over the last week, it seems not as good. So the textbook definition is 30 dB over three consecutive frequencies in 72 hours. And so when you're doing studies on sudden hearing loss, you really are confined to that as the entry diagnosis criteria. In real life, and really in my experience, and I see 
sometimes my husband says that I don't know anything but sudden hearing loss. And I'm like, I know one or two other things, but yeah, you're right. Not that many <laughs> other things. Um, so I see a ton of sudden hearing loss. I talk about sudden hearing loss a lot. I rarely see somebody who tells me, oh, yeah, you know, Saturday morning I was a little bad and Saturday afternoon I was a little worse and Sunday then, you know, like I, I really hear of a single time frame. And then they may feel worse over the course because, you know, it's quite horrible to suddenly not be able to hear out of one ear. You suddenly start getting, even if you don't have vertigo, you feel very off balance. Your external sounds, noisy environments are very off-putting, um, especially in the acute phase. It's very frightening. You know, if you think about if you woke up suddenly and you couldn't see out of one eye, even if it was just blurry and not out, You'd be like, oh my God, what's going to happen to me, right? These are frightening, frightening things for patients. And then unfortunately, what happens is they get this weird stroke workup in the ER, which can sometimes also provide maybe a delay in care or a, a road bump to care. But normally, the definition is, is, as I said, in real life, we treat people with sudden hearing loss that is less than that degree of intensity and even fewer frequencies. And certainly we treat people with um, much worse hearing loss than that. Are there like certain risk factors for patients who might be that unlucky one that gets sudden hearing loss? The short answer is yes. Um, and the longer answer to that is pregnancy and any other thrombolic state. So cancer is another one. There is some vague association with sudden hearing loss and stroke, although it is not a predictor of stroke. Certainly, we have toxins that can be ingested or placed intravenously in the case of either chemotherapeutic agents or aminoglycoside antibiotics or even IV push of furosemide can cause a sudden drop in hearing high-dose aspirin that people may not even know that they are ingesting. For example, um, over-the-counter antacid preparations like Alka-Seltzer have a lot of aspirin in them, and people may not be realizing what they're ingesting, so it's very important to ask about that. I wrote a paper, and Jim Saunders wrote a paper and did a very nice lab study looking at PDE-5 inhibitors, 6 inhibitors. Viagra, Cialis, the uh, impotence medications, and I apologize for that small brain issue of mine, um, looking at <laughs> that with uh, sudden hearing loss and the universe of people who use these agents is large, but there seems to be a higher than expected incidence of sudden hearing loss in that subset of patients who get sudden hearing loss and are on these medications. And there is a timeline with it. And certainly in 2022, we can't not talk about COVID. So there is an association with COVID infection and hearing loss, including sudden hearing loss uh, and tinnitus. And Tina Stankovich at Stanford has shown the inflammatory changes in the inner ear with COVID infection. There is much less data to support COVID vaccination and sudden hearing loss. We have the occasional patients who will claim, sounds like a negative word, who will say that this happened to them within, you know, one to seven days of having 
a vaccine and it is part of the VAERS database. But when the database has been queried, we're not seeing more sudden hearing loss after vaccine than we would in the normal population uh, historically. Wow. And so in knowing all of these risk factors, then when you're talking to patients and getting that history, are you, you know, digging for all of these details or screening for them or asking about them? I can't say that I'm always asking about all these things because it doesn't change the treatment that I know of, but maybe I should be asking. So the answer to that is I most of the time ask most of the questions. Um, And part of it is the patient has already given you a lot of that information in their review of systems and in their medication list. So that actually just requires a quick perusal of those two pages in your EMR. It is important because, for example, anti-malarial agents are one of the toxins that cause sudden otovestibular symptoms. And somebody who develops sudden hearing loss after their first dose of an anti-malarial agent should not actually take their second dose. And that hearing loss is often reversible either with treatment or without. And the treatment may simply be not exposing to that agent again. Uh, Same thing with the anti-impotence drugs. You know, they may be able to use something else, particularly if their hearing loss is not recovered. There are other things that can be done to help that issue while not putting their hearing at risk or their remaining hearing at risk. But you're right, Ashley. The treatment, whether the cause is known or surmised or unknown is basically the same. And before we get into treatment, any other questions that we need to be asking when we're taking that history? You know, I think we're all doctors, right? So when a symptom occurs, you're going to look for, have you been traveling? Have you eaten something different? Have you done something different? But I I don't think there's anything in particular. It's good to know, for example, if you're contemplating and we'll get into treatment in a second, but if you're contemplating an intratympanic injection of steroids, it's good to know if they're on a blood thinner. And, uh, you know, if you're contemplating systemic steroids, it's very important to know if they have diabetes or high blood pressure or some other issue for which there is a relative or, in fact, real contraindication to that kind of intervention. So I think being a doctor is possibly your first step. And then in terms of patients' presentation, how common is it to have vertigo and tinnitus? Is that like 10% of your patients? Is it just the patients that have severe hearing loss or a higher degree or more frequencies involved? Who's that group? So tinnitus is extremely common in sudden hearing loss. And so now, you know, you started by saying, is it conductive sensory neural? So we're really, we have moved on to sudden sensory neural hearing loss. And 90% of sudden sensory neural hearing loss is idiopathic, right? So I tell the patients that means the doctor is an idiot and you have a pathology, right? (laughs) So I don't know. I mean, I can try to help you figure it out. But as Ashley said, let's move along and see if we can recover your hearing and then we'll do everything else, right? So we didn't talk about vestibular schwannoma or retrochoclear pathology, but every single person at some point in their course, whether they recover or not from a sudden sensory neural hearing loss, 
should have a retrochoclear evaluation because even if they recover, there is a significant chance that they have a vestibular schwannoma. But I would say engaging that dialogue to explain to them that even if I don't know the cause, my chance of helping you when you don't present with vertigo or profound hearing loss, but you actually present with what uh, used to be called the steroid responsive zone, which is mild to moderately severe hearing loss in the mid-frequencies, is really very high. Tinnitus is quite common. Vertigo is less common, but to me indicates more inner ear damage. And vertigo is different than that sort of dizziness, disequilibrium that you feel with a moderate hearing loss. I am muddying the waters like nobody's business, right? <laughs> but, but you're thinking with vertigo, you're thinking the person who's got, you know, nystagmus and they're throwing up and they're just having almost like a labyrinthitis, like they're sick. It's a different picture than like, oh, I'm a little woozy. Correct. They've been seen in the ER. They've had their stroke work up. They're staggering in. They're ready to exit the world. That's how bad they feel. Yeah. And so once you're seeing them in your office, you know, you mentioned you're going to get an audiogram and you may talk to them about doing some other workup to evaluate for retrochoclear pathology. So I assume the most common thing would be MRI, but maybe there's other options as well. So let's talk about the audiogram first. So the audiogram should, you know, obviously have bone and air conduction. It should have masked bone because we're assuming that the other ear will be normal or near normal or wherever their affected ear was before this happened. Um, and you really want to look at word discrimination scores. And that's something to really keep in mind because restoring aidable hearing by pure tones that has very poor word discrimination may not be doing much of anything for the patient other than making the world like toxically uncomfortable in that ear. So I think being cognizant of the entirety of the audiogram is really important. The correct retrochoclear workup is an MRI scan. It's still considered the gold standard for retrochoclear pathology. It is very loud to do an MR and you will not do anything different by delaying that MRI until such time as you've been able to treat and hopefully recover the hearing. And even with, you know, the earmuffs that they put in the MRI machine, it's a pretty loud machine. It's pretty scary. I will tell patients, listen, let's do first things first. Here's your hearing loss. Here's your degree of hearing loss. Here's where your word wreck is. Let's treat. And I will sometime in the next month or so get an MRI scan on you because I want to see if there's a tumor or inflammation along the nerve or multiple sclerosis or any of the other things we're looking for that are sort of these outliers that can cause sudden hearing loss. So there's no negative to delaying an MRI for these patients, but it is certainly something that you should discuss at the outset. Having said that, I have a colleague, Larry Mitalis, who's in my practice now. We were just colleagues in New York when he did this, but now we're colleagues in the same practice. He, you know, of course, an orthopedic surgeon's wife had a sudden hearing loss and appeared with an MRI, right? Because, you know, 
we know how to get tests. Yeah. And so, she had, so she was found to have a vestibular schwannoma, and Larry removed the tumor and restored the hearing. That is a one in a million. Like, I just love that case. He presented it at the New York Onologic Society, and I'm like, you totally rock, man. But that does <laughs> yeah. not, that, you know, that's a, that's a superhuman thing. And so, you know, I talked to them about the pros and cons of MRI, and I really think that the noise damage to a currently damaged ear of MR is pretty significant. ABR, auditory brainstem response testing, or BAER or BSER, they're all the same thing, is an option. ABR will miss uh, 19 to 20% of intracanalicular vestibular schwannomas. I presented that right after my fellowship, so way the heck back in 1994, uh, I gave that presentation at COSM and my fellow resident, and I, I did my fellowship at the House Institute and Tom Rowland did his fellowship at NYU where we were both residents in the same year. And thank goodness, somehow I got on the podium giving this presentation a couple of papers before Tom gave the same presentation from the NYU experience. <laughs> so it's either 19% or 20%, depending on whether you were at the first presentation or the second presentation. <laughs> but it's about a fifth of intracanalicular tumors are missed by regular ABR. There's a new way to do ABR called stacked ABR, which is better at detection of small tumors, but still will miss 10 to 15%. And frankly, is not done other than in research institutions or with really highfalutin ABR studying audiologists. So for these patients, how often or when do you need an ABR for the patient that comes in with sudden hearing loss? Is there a, what makes you actually get one for a patient that comes in for this? So I will tell you that if it's a significantly older person on whom there would be no intervention for an intracanalicular tumor. You can offer an ABR. However, if their hearing loss is worse than 80 dB at 4K, you cannot offer them an ABR because you won't get waveforms. So um, their hearing has to be at essentially the severe level, and you have to have had a discussion with the patient and their family and yourself about why you're getting this test and what you would do with the information should there be something abnormal. If you are willing to have a normal ABR in somebody and therefore 20% chance of missing an intracanalicular vestibular schwannoma, that's fine. That's an appropriate counseling. If you're going to not accept a normal ABR and go to an MRI anyway, there's no point of adding the noise and expense of an ABR and, frankly, waste of your audiologist's time and energy. If the ABR is abnormal, you're going to end up getting an MRI because that may be either inflammation along the cochlear nerve or a vestibular schwannoma or a meningioma or something that's affecting the cerebellopontine angle. So, you know, you really have to think about it. The time I would get an ABR is if I thought that this was a fortuitous or a facetious or a fake 
hearing loss. So audiologists know how to do stenger. You kind of know how to do a stenger by just talking to patients, wearing your mask at a normal tone when they're not looking at you. And, you know, this is where I think using clinical judgment to say, hey, you know, I don't want to hurt this person by throwing treatment at them for something that may not exist, right? So you're really looking at whether the pure tone and the SRT and the word rec match and you're asking for a stanger and maybe your audiologist did OAEs and there are these robust OAEs with a putative threshold at 60 or 70 dB. Well, that doesn't make any sense, right? Or their word rec is completely out of proportion of whatever their hearing loss appears to be, then a threshold ABR is actually a very valid instrument. What about CT? What if the patient was in an ER and they got a CT, they show up with a CT? Or if they're just like, no, I'm claustrophobic, you can't make me get into an MRI or, or other reasons for not being able to get an MRI, does a CT help you at all? So the CT scan that the patient has uh, received in the ER for this workup is pointless. And it's basically a waste of radiation and money and time and energy because they have done very thick cuts um, looking for a stroke. So that doesn't help you at all. So we did the clinical practice guideline from the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery on sudden hearing loss. And then we did the clinical practice guideline update. And uh, we paired with Consumers Union which makes consumers reports and has a choosing wisely campaign, which is a way to engage with patients and the public to have them participate more knowledgeably in their interactions with healthcare. And so they really are focused on trying to avoid unnecessary interventions, such as the head brain CT in the ER. And so we strongly urge against that. However, if the patient has a sudden hearing loss and either, as you said, can't take an MRI for whatever number of reasons, including they have a pacemaker, et cetera, and you have the correct concern, which you should, about the retrochoclear pathology, thin cut CT temporal bone with contrast is a very reasonable substitute. And you can pair that with an ABR to be as thorough as possible for these patients. Also, if you are uh, subsequently looking at an unrecovered or an inadequately recovered uh, sudden sensory neural hearing loss, and you're thinking about implantable devices, that thin cut CT is actually very helpful. I like that point because those alternatives and options are very helpful in practice. Is there ever a time where you get labs for these patients? Is that ever indicated? It's a great question. So shotgun labs, no. And that means just randomly ticking every box or clicking everything in the, this panel and that panel and the other panel. We all know that as soon as you order a panel, you're going to be chasing two weird abnormals that actually have nothing to do with anything. However, Patient was out hiking last week and pulled a tick off of them, and now they have sudden hearing loss. Yes, Lyme is one of the things that causes sudden hearing loss. And so that goes from a sudden idiopathic hearing loss to a Lyme-related hearing loss. And treatment, identification of Lyme infection, and then treatment of that is very important. Syphilis is very prevalent 
especially in the homosexual population. So asking the correct questions and frankly, you know, I'm from New York, right? I don't trust anybody and I don't believe anybody. And even if you walk in with a nun's habit, I'll probably, you know, have a low threshold for checking a VDRL and FTA on you because it's something I can treat, right? So it's something that, you know, a couple of shots of penicillin are good for the soul. So targeted testing, I think, is very important. Shotgun testing, not at all. And back to before we get into treatment, your physical exam, you know, in my experience, it's pretty normal. You know, you're looking in the ear and they're like, are you sure? Are you sure there's not something there? And you're like, oh, it looks normal. And then with your audiogram too, are there any patterns on the audiogram that change what you're thinking about, whether it be like a low frequency, you know, loss versus, you know, mid-range versus high frequency? For your physical exam, I will just add, if the patient has any complaints of otalgia, and that's really different. Very, very few people with sudden hearing loss will tell you that their ear hurts, but really have a low threshold for looking for erythema or healing vesicles either in the canal or on the pinna. Obviously, you're going to look for facial palsy, like, oh my God, if you're missing a facial palsy in these people, I'm going to be really sad, right? So that's going to throw you in a different direction. Look for um, blebs on the TM. So there are viral exanthems that happen where you have these blebs on the TM that are also associated with sudden hearing loss. So your treatment may end up being the same for the sensory neural component of the hearing loss, but you may actually puncture the lateral surface of the bleb under a microscope and then put some boric acid powder on there to kind of uh, resolve that portion of it. I shockingly saw a patient who came after being admitted to a university hospital and being seen by staff there and residents there with a roaring herpes zoster oticus. And I'm like, what? Somehow that was missed. And I don't think anyone is dumb. I think what happens is you get sidetracked by where you think you're going and you don't step back and see where you are. And I think that's really important in life. And I think that's really important in medicine. So, you know, for your physical exam, I think those things are very, very important. We talked initially about conductive hearing losses. And if you see fluid in the ear, you know, you really have to be cognizant of that. A tympanogram, which we didn't mention, what may help you with that. But you should be able to be what at Pittsburgh they used to call a validated otoscopist, where you got it right like over 90% of the time if you felt there was or was not fluid in the middle ear when the patient went to the OR, was there fluid or not? So I've never been validated at Pittsburgh. 90% is high. It's really <laughs> high, right? But I, I'm always playing that trick with myself to see what I see and what I don't see, right? So and I think that's really crucial for your own particular uh, CME um, and assessments of your I own. I got that a resident once under the microscope and the OR putting tubes in. And then I felt so bad about it, like whether it's fluid or not. Because I'm like, it might take, anyway, sorry, sidetrack. No, but it's true, right? <laughs> you worry about it. But then you think about why you didn't go to the OR because they had fluid once, right? You went to the OR for some indications. The other day, I'm, I'm old and all I do is look in ears, right? And the other day, I punctured an eardrum for an intratympanic injection and a big box of mucus. And yes, the word is mwah, of mucus <laughs> um, 
dropped out of the year. And I was like, ah. And, but it was a hit sense. I was like, oh, I lose in the validation today. Right? <laughs> so it happens. Um, and then you kind of fix where you were and you continue on. So physical exam, I think, is not to be belittled in any possible way. And then you had asked me about something and I forgot what you asked me. And, and then about patterns on the audiogram. So like if you have a patient that, you know, it's predominantly a low frequency loss, are you thinking that this could be Meniere's or cochlear high drops and maybe their first episode versus if it's mid-range or high frequency and kind of what your thoughts are with looking at those patterns? Right. So I think that's really important. So we talked about pure tones. We talked about proper masking to get proper thresholds. We talked about word discrimination. Certainly we can talk about tympanograms to help you validate yourself. But the shape of the audiogram is really important. So low frequency, also called upsloping audiograms, first, they tend to recover almost if you do whatever you do. Go tell the patient to stand on their head for a week, you know, give them some steroids, give them some diuretics, tell them to stop eating, you know, salty foods, you know, whatever. Like they, they tend to recover. And if they don't recover, that's really quite meaningful to me because these, these tend to recover. The sloping or downsloping or high frequency hearing losses tend not to recover. And I possibly am at least mentally more aggressive with those patients in terms of treatment. I don't know if I'm actually more aggressive. I think I'm pretty aggressive with treating sudden hearing loss. I'm very Pollyanna. I very much believe that I can help recover hearing loss. And I do discuss that particular implicit bias in myself with the patients because it's very important that they know where their doctor is starting. But the high frequencies tend not to recover, and I'm pretty aggressive about those. The pantonal, which is all frequencies, can be mild, moderate, severe, or profound. In those, the low frequencies have a tendency to recover faster and possibly better than the higher frequencies. So the low and mids tend to recover, but the highs can recover. It doesn't mean the highs can't recover. It means you just have to be cognizant that they can take their own sweet time a little bit. But in the pantonal, you're really looking at the severity across frequencies. So Norma Penido, who is at the Universidad Federal de Sao Paulo in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, she published looking a year later at her patients who presented with sudden hearing loss, and 30% ultimately uh, showed as Meniere's or cochlear high drops. So you really do have to follow these patients over time. And in a society with less mobility, it's easier to follow patients over time. And frankly, in private practice, it's easier to follow patients over time than it is in a a more mobile society or a clinic practice or somewhere where access to healthcare comes and goes. But I think you really have to think about Meniere's as a potential cause that can only be determined sometime later in these patients, and you do have to keep following them. On those initial visits, do y'all kind of mention that as a differential just for expectations? Or is that not really part of the conversation until that follow-up where, you know, where you actually kind of think that that's what's going on? So I hesitate to mention Meniere's because people Google Meniere's and there's really stupid stuff on the internet about Meniere's. And I do not use that word lightly. 
Like, I don't mind that my patients are on the internet. Clearly, I'm on the internet, right? But there is some really just ridiculous stuff on the internet about Meniere's. And they think you've given them this sort of death sentence when you make that diagnosis. And um, that's not true. So I don't think that's as meaningful of a conversation to have as the, I will get an MRI scan on you, even though your likelihood of having something going on is very low. I'm just treating you first so I don't hurt your hearing, bringing your hearing back up, and then I will get an MRI. But, you know, I, I, I really couch that in the words of this is not going to mean something crazy to you in the future, um, most likely. The Meniere's dialogue, if they present with a low frequency or sort of that Meniere's pattern, you know, I might say, hey, you know, uh, we see this sometimes in fluid overpressure in the inner ear. So we can treat you with my first line treatment for sudden sensory neural hearing loss, but maybe add the other things that I do for cochlear high drops or endolymphatic high drops at the same time or in quick succession. And then in terms of uh, differentials, I mean, we said that most are uh, idiopathic, but obviously the differential is crucial, right? So we don't miss something. We've talked about tumors. We've talked about potential stroke. We've talked about infections. We've talked about many years or endolymphatic hydrops. Is there anything else on y'all's differential that you're just wanting to make sure, hey, it's definitely not this? And I know we've talked about medications as well. So in addition to the things we've mentioned, I would say the other thing that I do ask about is a family history. So you're looking for a congenital, if it's a cookie bite shape, particularly if it's a child. So none of the clinical practice guidelines address children, right? So the clinical practice guidelines and the update were age 18 and above. But a child comes in, blew a trumpet for the first time, has a cookie bite hearing loss, right? You're going to think differently. Uh, I had a child come in with sort of vitiligo in their mid face and the middle portion of one eyebrow and uh, slightly lighter colored skin on a slightly broad nasal dorsum. And then I looked over at mom and she hadn't dyed her hair in a while and she had a white forelock, right? Just keep your eyes peeled because we should be the best observers of people and start thinking about potential syndromic and non-syndromic genetic hearing losses. So that's the other thing that I might talk about. The other thing is, obviously, we didn't mention perilymphatic fistula. You know, if the, the patient gives you a trauma history, whether it's barotrauma or head trauma, um, you really want to think about perilymphatic fistula as a possibility. Okay, so we've done a pretty good job of kind of setting the stage as far as like evaluating our patient and testing and so maybe we can move on and talk about management, treatment, setting expectations, that sort of discussion. So there's a great deal to do with explaining the audiogram to the patient, all the things that we talked about, the shape of the audiogram, the degree of hearing loss, the word recognition score. Most people do not have a pre-morbid audiogram. So we explain to them that we assume that the ear in question was just like the other ear prior. And if they have a pre-morbid audiogram, obviously, it's very nice to look at that and be able to counsel. I counsel patients in the mild hearing loss category that their chance of getting better is extraordinarily high. And often, 
some of the literature on sudden hearing loss is skewed because mild hearing loss people have their hearing loss and then recover their hearing and never come in, right? So they may be more uptight or easier to access healthcare if they're coming in with a mild hearing loss, but the chances are they're going to get better. The severe to profound hearing loss, the anacusic patients, the ones who present with severe vertigo, they have a less of a likelihood of hearing improvement no matter what we do, but we should try everything to try to get their hearing back. And then there's that steroid effective zone that was defined by Wilson, Bile, and Laird in the 70s, and that still holds true. So the sort of mild to moderately severe um, mid-frequency hearing loss, they respond about four to one to steroid treatment. And so that's a huge number, four to one, right? So I talk to all my patients about the things I'm thinking about because I truly believe in shared decision-making with patients. And there's nothing we're doing that could not potentially have a negative outcome in one way or another, right? Whether we're not treating, whether we're giving oral steroids, whether we're injecting with steroids, right? So, you know, this is where shared decision-making is really very important, including the shared decision-making of delaying the retrocochlear workup and why we're doing that, et cetera. So I think setting proper expectations and having the patient understand where you're coming from as the treating physician is really important. The other thing we didn't mention is age. So under 18, unfortunately, has a less good prognosis than sort of 18 to 60. Above 60, 65 has a less good prognosis as well. One of my residents presented that over age 45, old people, he said, um, Gosh. <laughs> and I just looked at him and I was like, dude, do you want to graduate from this residency program? <laughs> so, so really it's the under 18 and over 60, um, have a little bit less good prognosis than sort of working years people. So I appreciate the shared decision-making a lot, but does that mean you're less likely to do steroids in the patients that have significant, profound hearing loss? Or how does that change your management if you had your choice? I mean, I, I realize when you have a hammer, everything isn't a nail. But like, are you less likely to do steroids for that very mild hearing loss? Or is it one of those, hey, you know, if you can tolerate intratepanic steroids or let's go ahead and get something in today while you're here? Or maybe that's a naive, I don't no, know. No, no, it's a, it's a terrific question, and it's actually something I think about a lot. So let's start with the mild. So the mild hearing loss patients, I say to them, this is great. You're probably going to get better no matter what, but I think it's really reasonable to give you some steroids. And for them, oral steroids are plenty, but the oral steroids are an actual treatment and not a medrol dose pack. So an actual treatment of steroids is prednisone one milligram per kilogram per day for seven days. Some people use it for 10 days or two weeks. I use it for seven days, followed by a taper over seven days. And all the, the medicine that I give, I ask the patients to take in the morning with breakfast. One, it increases the bioavailability based on studies done in asthma and in arthritis. 
And two, it prevents them from um, having insomnia related to their prednisone when they're taking their evening dose of the prednisone. I have them take it with breakfast daily, and I have them protect their stomach with an over-the-counter antacid daily while they're on the prednisone. So normally, I will give 20 milligram tablets, so three tablets or 60 milligrams a day for seven days, followed by 40 milligrams a day for four days, 20 milligrams a day for three days, and stop. It is possible in just um, a one-week course of prednisone to just stop, but they feel really horrible. It doesn't feel good for patients. So I do the taper. When they have mild hearing loss, a lot of times my patients will take that first dose or two, and then they'll say, listen, my hearing's back. And nowadays, one of the advantages of the COVID pandemic closures was that these smartphone-related hearing apps became better and better. And either they'll come in for a hearing test or I'll ask them, why don't you take one of those online hearing tests? And some are commercial products, but the World Health Organization has a you know, free product, which is an online hearing test. And they can take that and send it to me. And frankly, you know, if their hearing is back, they can just stop the steroids right then and there. So I let them know that there's a very good likelihood that they won't actually be taking the full course of this, depending on their response. Then let's move on to the sort of steroid responsive zone people, right? So those people get that same oral steroid dose. And I will say to them, this is a very, very high likelihood that this is going to get your hearing back, but I'm going to see you in a week. So as you're starting the taper part, if your hearing is not where you and I want it to be, I would like to start injections into your ear at that point. And this is how I do the injections. And this is what it's going to feel like. And I give them a chance to process. There is a psychological aspect to sudden hearing loss that we really have very poor literature exploring, but it is scary as all get out to lose a sense. They're very panic-stricken, and it's really important that we have this dialogue and we sort of explain why we're doing what we're doing, and the fact that in my reading of the literature and in my vast experience with sudden hearing loss, I do not think that there is a delay or a lack of recovery if I do it in that way. So if I give them the one week of oral, followed by offering them the intratympanic starting on day seven or eight. For the anacusic patients or the severe to profound, I actually throw everything at them on day one. So I actually treat them more. And that is based on uh, Robert Cueva's studies from Kaiser in San Diego. And this is why they did that clinical pathway within their system of getting the patients in, that because they have actually a very poor likelihood of recovery, giving them everything, belt and suspenders at the same time, seems to be much more effective than doing it in a sequential fashion. And for your IT steroids, are you using dexamethasone? And are you doing that three injections one week apart? Or how do you do that? So I do it the right way. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I, we had to cut up somewhere because we're talking about anacusic patients. Um, uh, I use dexamethasone 24 milligrams per ml. So I have that made for me at a compounding pharmacy. 
Sometimes institutional pharmacies will make it, but often there's quite a bit of resistance. But the data is so compelling that 24 milligrams per ml is significantly better than 10 milligrams per ml. And frankly, four milligrams per ml, you might as well just be injecting some saline into their ear from literature that I have reviewed. So I get it compounded for me. I have a practice in Midtown Manhattan. So if you're ever at the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, come visit me. I'm just two blocks away and I'll get you a nice cup of hot chocolate. (laughs) But uh, so I have a practice in Midtown Manhattan and I have a practice in Wayne, New Jersey. And after the debacle many years ago of a compounding pharmacy in Massachusetts that had a contamination problem and there were intrathecal injections of compounded material that caused really horrific complications. The federal law changed and you can no longer get compounded medications across state lines. So you will actually have to find a compounding pharmacy that will make the medicine for you in the state that you're practicing in. So I have one compounding pharmacy in New York state and one compounding pharmacy in New Jersey and you can find them in your state. They just have to be within your state. So I get the 24 milligrams per ml, and I use a phenol applicator, but I do not use that strange cotton tip thing that comes with the disposable phenol packets, because that's like half the size of the TM, and nobody needs to burn half of the TM for this. So there's actually a phenol applicator that looks like a right-angle hook, but it has two little parallel hooks of the right angle hook. And you dip that into the phenol, whether you get it in a big bottle or in a tiny little applicator bottle. And you just need that micro dose that's between the tips of that right angle. And I inject, and this is different than some of my colleagues, but I, I told you I do it right. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, so I inject antero superior. So I take the tines of that right angle and I tell the patient, this is going to burn like crazy for about a second. And I tell them to hold still for that one second because you don't want to touch the canal wall with the phenol. You don't want to touch any other portion of the drum with that phenol. And so I touch the antro superior quadrant of the drum and I see the blanch instantaneously and it burns. And I, you know, I, I touch and I come out. So the patients are really quite, again, if you explain something to somebody, you know, they'll hold still. I have injected as young as nine years old in the office, frankly. So you can inject as long as you set expectations correctly. So I wait for the blanch. And as it blanches, that horrific burn, because it can be really horrific for the majority of people, goes away. And I say, okay, does it feel better? And they're like, yeah, you weren't kidding. And I'm like, yeah, I kid about a lot of stuff, but I don't kid about that. And then you see the blanch. So you know that you are well anesthetized. And then I take a 25-gauge spinal needle, and I've drawn up about 0.5.6 ml of the dexamethasone, 24 milligrams per ml, into a 1 ml syringe. So you don't want it in a 3 ml or a 5 ml. You don't want a big pressure head of a too big syringe. I connect that to my long spinal needle and I bend the spinal needle like an otologic instrument so that I can actually see around my fingers and my thumb on the plunger. And then I make a 
small puncture, very anterosuperior at that blanch spot. And that's my air egress hole. And then I just move my needle and I make a second puncture just inferior to that. It's like less than a millimeter away from that. And then I start injecting. And what I see is initially nothing because the fluid fills the hypotympanum first. And then the air fluid level moves up and up and up the middle ear. And then air bubbles and then fluid come out of that first hole that I made. And I'm kind of done. And normally the middle ear, in my experience, holds somewhere between 0.3 and 0.5 ml. If you happen to just put all of the stuff in and let the rest of it spill out into the ear canal, you've done nothing wrong. The patient has been lying at a basically uh, 45 to 60 degree angle with the affected ear up. I move them now so that their nose is pointing straight to the ceiling because I really want that round window membrane bathed and I don't want that fluid going out anterosuperiorly to the eustachian tube. And then I ask them not to swallow for 20 minutes. And I'm still the 20-minute girl. And there was a paper that came out of Asia several years ago. I think it was out of Korea that said 12 minutes was as good as 20 minutes. But I haven't seen that replicated anywhere. So I'm still 20 minutes. And I, a patient of mine came in who has Meniere's and I've injected her several times. Um, and she likes her wine. And she came in one day with a cork. And I'm like, Maureen, what is this? And she's like, I realized if I keep my teeth the distance of the width of this cork apart, my tongue won't touch the roof of my mouth, or or she was trying to say palate, and I won't want to swallow. So we learn a lot of things from our patients. She brings her cork when she needs her injection. I don't drink enough wine to have enough corks. So I have a couple of tongue blades, and I wrap up some gauze, some four-by-fours, and I make it about the width of a cork, and I place that between the front teeth of the patient, and they can kind of drool into the the gauze if they want, and they basically are asked to do their best not to swallow, and I ask them not to swallow. I say, I'm going to tell you when it's your last swallow, and they will immediately swallow because don't think about pink elephants, right? It's the same concept. So, um, I get that out of their system. And frankly, when I say to them, this is your last swallow, I take my last swallow and then I do the injection. And then they're there for about 20 minutes. They can become very dizzy, vertiginous with the injection. So the way to prevent that to some degree is to make sure that the injection is warmed to body temperature. So I have some lovely nurses and MAs who will, you know, hold it in their hand while they're preparing everything else for me. You can put it under your armpit to sort of expedite the warming. You really don't want to put cold fluid into the ear unless you just really hate the patient. But even with that, you know, there's some people who get vertigo and I prepare them for that. If you feel like you're getting vertigo or really dizzy, look at that coat hook on the door or look at the edge of one of my million of diplomas that's hanging up on the wall and just focus your eyes on that and you'll overcome the dizziness and you'll see their nystagmus. And then you'll see it slow down and then you'll see that they're okay. And I think um, we have to stay in the room until they feel comfortable. And then my nurse lets them exit after 20 minutes. Um, they're given silicon putty earplugs to use in the shower 
during the week that I don't see them. And then they come back in a week, they get a hearing test and we repeat the injection. And it's normally up to three to four injections once weekly. And it's really based on subjective and objective descriptions of their hearing. If you're at the third injection and you've seen no change, do you keep going for the fourth? It's a wonderful question. If the patient says to me, you know, I do better for a day or two and then it just gets bad again, or I know you inject me on Tuesdays and I really, you know, I can feel the hearing come back on Friday and Saturday and then by the time I see you, it's bad again, I will do that fourth injection. But if they are echoing what the audiogram is showing, that there's really no improvement, I think if there's no movement after three shots, subjectively or objectively, you can offer as a Hail Mary that fourth or you can wait. In the clinical practice guidelines, we did talk about salvage regimens. So you can, in fact, wait for like a month, see if anything happens. And now you're maybe seven, eight weeks out. Um, which is outside of the six weeks guideline for salvage. But then if they're like, you know, I want to try again, or I think, or I this, or I that. The downside to me for, for intratomatic injection of steroid is so little that I have a low threshold for offering it for salvage. But that is outside the guideline. And again, I know shared decision-making, but these are really important things that you have to talk to patients about. And like I said, I am very, very Pollyanna about the ability to restore hearing. And I have colleagues whom I respect greatly who, you know, are not. And the time frame, if the steroids are going to work, it's three weeks from the time of onset of hearing loss or? So the initial treatment for sudden hearing loss is best if instituted within two to four weeks. And there are papers that say 72 hours, and then there are papers that say a week. And clearly in that window, one to two weeks is better than five to six weeks. So we talked about how in the beginning, it's hard for patients to get to us. At that week, you know, three to six, is it the same though? Do you go ahead and use sort of that same protocol of potential oral steroids, depending on the severity of hearing loss or intratympanic plus minus? Yes, with the caveat that if it's closer to that four to six to seven to eight week mark, because unfortunately we live in the real world, I might do the simultaneous treatment. If by then they are upset about their hearing loss, but they're not as petrified that they're about to drop dead, right? It's a different patient who is seeing you if the hearing loss has been there for, you know, several weeks as opposed to a few days. So, they may be more receptive to this concept of this lady attacking them with a big needle. And then how does your management or your algorithm change uh, with steroids for the diabetic patient? Right. So if they have a systemic problem where oral steroids could really compromise their health. So an out-of-control diabetic is not going to heal their hearing loss, just like they're not going to heal their gangrenous toe and they're not going to heal you know, everything else. If they're in that steroid effective zone, the multi-institutional trial that was run by Steve Rausch, looking a head-to-head comparison of intertympanic versus oral steroids, showed that efficacy was at least equal between the two and complications or side effects were significantly worse with the oral steroids. 
So in that steroid effective zone, you could say, listen, you know, the safest thing for you is for me to do the injections of steroids and then have that steroid injection conversation right away. But they may say, you know what, I measure my glucose every day and I really, I have this, you know, that implantable thing that, you know, keeps track of me. And I, you know, I'm really like an amazingly well-controlled diabetic, able to manage myself. I would like the best possible chance Then I might do both at the same time. And we can discuss that with their uh, internist or their endocrinologist. If they are on blood thinners, you know, you really don't want to start putting them on steroids. They're already at such a risk for bleeding that an intratympanic injection is very nice. The blood supply of the tympanic membrane is radial. So you're going to be fine, um, you know, just doing two small punctures like I talked about. You're not going to cause any significant bleeding. You know, if there's an underlying issue and you can do just as well with intratympanic, I think it's very reasonable to only give intratympanic. If they are profound and the data is clear that both treatments are better, if they can tolerate both treatments, that's great. And if they cannot, we can always do a cochlear implant in these people. We can always give them a cross hearing aid. We can always do an osseointegrated implant. Like there are other options available. So you know, you're a doctor first. Always be a doctor first. Yeah, it can be tricky when patients are not just the classic textbook, just one thing. So when you get through with your, let's say, you know, you do your oral steroids and then you do your IT injections and now you're at that point where you've really seen no improvement. Is there anything else left to talk about if patients are just like anything, you know, bring my hearing back? Like, is Does there... acupuncture help? Or, or, or what about hyperbaric oxygen? Right. So we didn't talk about uh, hyperbaric. So acupuncture has not shown benefit in sudden hearing loss. There is some benefit that has been shown in tinnitus overall for acupuncture. There is a benefit for complementary and integrative medicine techniques in tinnitus. Uh, if it's a noise-induced hearing loss, there are some agents like resveratrol and N-acetylcysteine that can be used to try to ameliorate the tinnitus, which is the secondary symptom of the noise-induced hearing loss, and possibly help with the hearing loss. Hyperbaric oxygen. The first clinical practice guideline considered it an option. The update, based on all the data that we reviewed, said it was an option only if combined with steroid therapy for either primary or salvage treatment of sudden hearing loss. There are countries in which hyperbaric oxygen is sort of like the baseline treatment, like everybody gets that. The outcomes are not better than countries such as ours, where that is not the baseline treatment in most patients. I have not seen compelling data, which is why that remained an option in the clinical practice guidelines and only an option now with concomitant steroid therapy. Um, and in my personal practice, I have yet to see compelling data for hyperbaric oxygen. In America, you cannot talk about healthcare without talking about finances and coverage. And there are some insurances that will cover hyperbaric oxygen. So then you say, well, the worst thing you're going to lose is time and energy making the dives. The dives themselves are pretty safe. The days where everybody needed a tube for a hyperbaric dive for their non-healing ulcer or whatever, those days are pretty much gone. The dives are better done now in the hyperbaric chambers. 
So if all they're going to lose is time and energy, that's the conversation to have with the patient. When patients are paying out of pocket for it, I find it really difficult to agree with that as one of their treatment protocols. There's some old-fashioned stuff that I can talk about. There's papaverin, which is a smooth vessel vasodilator. And um, there was a supply chain issue sometime in the middle of this pandemic uh, where we couldn't get papaverin anywhere, but it's given us pavabid. It's twice daily, very old-fashioned. If you read some of the older literature, like from the House Air Institute, you'll see uh, it mentioned. And there are certain patients of mine who really do respond very well to papaverin alongside these other treatments that we've talked about. There's niacin, which is vitamin B6, and you know B vitamins in general are considered very neuroprotective. Lipoflavonoid vitamins, which are marketed as LBC, lipobioflavonoids with B and C, uh, seem to be very neuroprotective. There's not a lot of data for them. They're very safe, and sometimes I'll try those. If there is a hint of a viral phenomenon, I will at the onset start them on an antiviral, but this is not a knee-jerk like you might do with a Bell's palsy. And in terms of follow-up, so we said, you know, at the initial, then weekly, let's say you're at like week six now and you've completed the three injections and the hearing loss went from moderate to mild to moderate. So we got a little improvement. What are your next steps? Um, when do you see them again, the discussion of amplification? When does that come up? So if they're still improving and I've gotten them from a moderate severe to a mild or mild to moderate, I will offer them that fourth injection. And then I normally will say, let me see you in a month. But during the time of the injections, I've actually asked them to try to stimulate their brain to hear from the poor side. So to use headphones or earbuds or whatever, only in the bad ear to listen to either podcasts that they like or better yet, music that they're very familiar with, where their brain will kind of fill in the details. Uh, there's a couple of nice papers that came out about auditory stimulation for recovery of sudden hearing loss. And I think that cannot hurt them and can potentially help quite a bit. And we see this in hearing aid users. We see people go from fair word discrimination to good word discrimination simply by having used their hearing aid on a consistent basis because I explained to patients, you know, we use our ears to transmit sound, but we hear with our brains. So the more you're stimulating your brain, the better. So I will ask them to do auditory stimulation in that way if they can tolerate it. Some people just hate it and won't do it, but most people like the dispensation to do that. I will see them in a month. And then per the clinical practice guidelines, uh, you should see them at six months, you know, six months from the end of your treatment. If they are aidable, they need to be aided as soon as possible. That again helps that ear brain interface very much. I had a patient who I treated when she was several months, she was seven or eight months pregnant when I first met her. And, you know, she's pregnant and back then a little bit of concern about oral steroids. But I think talking with her OB, we gave her oral, we gave her injections. I brought her hearing from profound to aidable, which is a huge difference. 
She started wearing her hearing aid. Baby's growing. She's happy. And the baby's about five, six months, seven months old. By then, we had become friends. So she's like, Sujata, you know, I think my hearing aid is too loud. And she came in and she had had further improvement of her hearing. So I never count an ear out. Um, and so I think you got to really uh, be aware that it may take a little while to recover, but aiding is very, very helpful. And then at that six month mark, you know, having done all of the things we just talked about, if they really have not recovered, and then it's a good time to talk to them about amelioration for their now unrecovered, usually severe to profound hearing loss, unrecovered, unaidable. And so you can start as simple as a cross device, which stands for contralateral routing of sound or signal. And that, I explained to the patients, looks like two hearing aids, the one in your bad ear, picks up the sounds and sends it to the microphone in your good ear. And then your good ear hears from your bad side and your good side. And the brain is really quite capable of distinguishing the analog sound from the normal side and the digital sound from the poor side pretty fast. It, it takes a little bit of uh, getting used to, but the brain does it pretty well. Um, and certainly there are osseointegrated implants if they like that, but they want something more robust. The sound from either percutaneous implant like a Baja or a Ponto or um, transcutaneous like a bone bridge or an Ossia implant, those hearing outcomes are really nice. They're all cross technology, so they're very based on how good the, the good ear is. And then cochlear implants for single-sided deafness are really outstanding. Uh, when we first thought about them, again, we thought, how's the brain going to cleave together you know, normal analog sound from the good ear and then completely electrical sound from the bad ear. But it turns out the brain is quite a plastic thing and can really make those adjustments at even advanced age. So that's a really good option, but that's not an option that I would do until six months have passed because I think that we can really look to see improvement and we can look to see how the patient is managing with their non-surgically implantable amelioration in that time frame. And then, haha, the future is going to be intratympanic therapies to try to regrow hair cells. I'm just wrapping up being one of the clinical sites of the Frequency Therapeutics FX322 trial. And there you have to do the injection, not with phenol, but with EMLA and posteriorly sort of posterocentral, like right above where the round window orifice would be, because it's a very small amount and it's a gel. And you essentially want it to enter the round window niche and sit against the round window membrane. So the, the injection technique is a little different uh, for that particular investigational device or investigational drug. But in the future, the dream is we'll be able to take these people and really improve their word recognition. And this is where I'm going to keep harping on word recognition, because even if you have a moderately severe pure tone loss, but your word rec now goes from 50% to 80%, man, you will love your hearing aid, right? I think that's really important to, to talk to patients and get them to understand what part of hearing is actually what they are missing. 
So I think in the future, sort of these drug therapies, gene therapies are going to come. If you have a profound hearing loss, you know, severe to profound, no discrim, I wouldn't wait around for that. Cochlear implants work beautifully right now. But if you've got something a little bit less than that and, you know, you can sort of play the field a little bit with the other devices, it might be nice not to open the inner ear on these people. It's exciting. Yeah, it's it's really cool. I have to say, I, you know, I'm such a nerd, right? So I'm like, oh my god! I, I come home to my normal husband, and I'm like, oh my god! Guess what research I'm doing? <laughs> and he's just like, okay, that's honey. all you know. <laughs> that's all I know. That's he's all right. I know. That's all I know. <laughs> and if you ask my four kids, it's probably that what they think too. So, well. So I think that this has been amazing and we've really covered the topic deeply. And uh, I mean, any pearls or tips, anything that we just want to leave listeners with as a summary or anything we missed? Uh, One, I want to thank you guys because this is really a wonderful opportunity. Our audience cannot see, but we're all wearing matching back table, ENT, (laughs) swag. I've got both my sweatshirt and my t-shirt on. And I'm really proud of you both for creating this really accessible learning tool. This is really incredible. So congratulations. Thank you. And thank Thank you for including me. I was like, what's up with me? All my friends get warm back to me. Well, I just got a (laughs) t-shirt. Thank you for always being so supportive on social media as well, because that's how we, you know, get it out to listeners and Thank you for contributing to the content of it. I, we're, I got the easy side. I, I just ask questions. <laughs> yeah, no, it, and it's a lot of fun. And I think exploring um, new media and new ways to learn is, is very exciting. As a pearl, I would say consider sudden hearing loss as an otologic emergency. Consider that the loss of a sense is frightening and can be rather devastating to the patient and their family. There are handouts from the clinical practice guidelines from the academy that can be purchased as like card stock or downloaded onto smartphones. And you can actually give those out to your referring docs or your local urgent care centers and say, hey, this is why this is important. Maybe gift them a tuning fork with a link to the (laughs) handouts, uh, because I think that's really important. I think keeping the end in mind is really important on the first minute that you see the patient. So really talking to them about what you're looking at, what you're generally considering in the future is really important. Making sure you do that retrocochlear workup and you don't forget, because none of us is infallible. So write it down and tell them, Remind me, I'm supposed to order an MRI scan on you, you know, when we're all said and done, even if we're better and absolutely get that retrocochlear workup, even if the patient recovers completely. And, you know, I think being the hearing doctor is a really important part of who we are. Well, thank you so much. For our listeners, please check out She's on call. Uh, it's on YouTube for the video chat as well as the podcast. I believe I listened to it on Apple. So it's on Apple Podcast. Yeah, everywhere you get podcasts, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So please check those out. And you're on social media, right? 
Can listeners find you um, on Twitter? Or? Yeah, I'm at Dr. Sujana Ent. So Dr. S U J A N A E N T on Twitter, and I'm my first name and my last name on Instagram to make it as difficult as possible to find <laughs> me. Um, it's Sujana Chandrasekhar. Um, I'm pretty sure if you just start typing Sujana, I'm possibly the only one that comes up. And please check out the podcasts per issue for Otolaryngologic Clinics of North America that you can get on the clinics uh, website or you can get wherever you get podcasts. Those are really fun. I get to be the two of you on those podcasts. <laughs> and I just get to ask really smart people questions mm -hmm. about stuff. And, you know, <laughs> nerd me is in heaven <laughs> doing that too. And if you haven't made plans yet, come to the January sections meeting at the Triologic. It's in beautiful, sunny San Diego at the Del Coronado. I'm the Eastern Section Vice President this year, but I'm also the program chair. And I think that I've put together, along with the other vice presidents, a really engaging program, which actually one of the last panels of the program is on using social media as an otolaryngologist. So hopefully uh, you guys will attend and chime in. Thank you again. Thanks so much. This is really fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.